This is Keith Pauling from Arlington, Virginia, and I can't believe that your podcast is ending. I have so enjoyed it. You have provided in-depth, detailed analysis, and it has changed how I've looked at the presidency because I think you have. Honestly, Keith, I can't believe this podcast is ending either. See, last week when I announced that this would be the final episode of Can He Do That?, I asked for your help. I wanted to know what questions you still have about the office of the presidency and the future of our democracy. Keith sent us this voicemail. I'm so curious about many things, about the relationship of the president with the Constitution in terms of what must be done and the things that uh, we assume are in law but really are more practice are more president just the way things have been done in the past. But still lots of questions really about the limits of the presidency and how the Congress can better restrain the presidency. Keith's questions, it turns out, were pretty much the same as ours. What norms have changed so much that the presidency will never be quite the same? What should be codified into law? And what might the harm be in doing that? Has our democracy been tested? And what have we learned about its ability to endure that test? And how much concentrated power does any of this leave in the hands of the American president? So as we've done for five plus years, we set out to find some answers one last time. This is Can He Do That, a podcast about the powers and limitations of American government in a time of deep division. I'm Allison Michaels. Later in the show, I talked to a historian about the framers' vision of the presidency and where we are now. What happens if American people don't care if the president does something bad? What happens if the American people are willing to overlook almost anything? And that is not something that was anticipated by the system. That was not something that I think was anticipated by most observers and something we have not yet fully grappled with. But first, I thought it only fitting to start off with a conversation about the president who inspired this show to begin with, former President Donald Trump. Then I have an article, too, where I have the right to do whatever I want as president, but I don't even talk about that. For that conversation, I turned to my Washington Post colleagues and President Trump experts, investigative reporter Carol Lennig and deputy national editor Philip Rucker. Together, they wrote two books about the Trump presidency, A Very Stable Genius, and I Alone Can Fix It. I asked Phil to start by reflecting on the pieces of governing from the White House that do actually remain pretty consistent from president to president. There are some norms that we've seen hold true. There's an inauguration in January every four years, and that has happened every time. Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear. There are certain things that presidents do when they're in office. They deliver an annual State of the Union address to the Congress. Mr. Speaker, the President of the United States. They swear in members of their cabinet. They swear in justices and, and nominate justices to the Supreme Court and nominate many judges across the federal courts at the district and circuit level. That has all continued throughout the presidencies. Yet, when it gets beyond that, you don't see a lot of consistency uh, among administrations because each president has a, a distinct and different agenda and distinct and different political challenges vis-a-vis -vis the Congress. But a lot of the norms that we think of or has, have historically thought of as, as rules, as traditions in our government, were really busted by Trump. He broke through a lot of those barriers and those norms in a way that really alarmed traditionalists in the American government. 
It's absolutely right what Phil said about all of the norms that we came to accept as the pattern and the tradition of a presidency were busted. And the ones that really held government together from year to year, gave it consistency, gave it actually like prestige and honor, made the office of the presidency one that was considered not just powerful, but regal and one of incredible public service. Those norms included things like completely accepting the rule of law. At the Justice Department, she will enter a building that symbolizes our nation's commitment to justice, to equality, to the enforcement of our laws. On the side of that building, carved above one of the portals, is the inscription, the halls of justice are a hallowed place. With Janet Reno serving as our nation's... And honoring it, valuing it. Another was accepting and preserving independent, objective findings by a large bureaucracy that has expertise in science and health and math and economy. I just had the opportunity to meet with doctors Gartland and Ribner and members of their team and the nurses who, uh, sorry doctors, but haven't been in hospitals. I know <laughs> they're the ones really doing the work. Um, and I had a chance to thank them for uh, their extraordinary efforts in helping uh, to provide care for... Uh, Another key element was respecting the basic civility between the two parties. And finally, the norm that Trump busted that I think is the most serious, the most dramatic and jaw-dropping, is his rejection of the long-held tradition that a president represents all Americans, not just some Americans. All of these things were shredded. Yeah, Carol, a lot of your work focuses on government accountability, on, on investigations. So what have you learned about how presidents kind of come to view their own sense of, of power? What I think we all learned, that previous presidents had wielded their power in a very different way and had realized there were limits to their power and, and respected that. And Trump never respected a limit to his power. He believed as if he were still a real estate developer or a casino magnate, that he could bust the law and get what he wanted done. Everything from religious discrimination in one of his first steps as president, banning people from Muslim religion countries from coming into ours. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. Down to insisting that a secretary of state eliminate an ethics rule long held in this country that U.S. businessmen could not pay bribes to foreign governments to get better business deals in those countries. This is a president who saw no limits, and his bullying and his insistence on that over and over again showed that the institutions and the norms were bustable. If he decided to do this, in many instances, he succeeded. Not all of them, but in many instances, he succeeded. And they brought me to the final stages of impeachment. But now we have that gorgeous word. I never thought a word would sound so good. It's called total acquittal. Total acquittal. I'm wondering if there were any moments throughout your reporting the past 
five years where you've had to ask the question, can he do that from Trump's perspective or since Biden's been in power where you've had to sort of gut check whether or not he had the power to do the things he was doing? Yes, uh, many times. I can't even count for you, as you can imagine, and I'm sure Phil can't either. I, I couldn't count the number of times I asked the question, can he really do that? I mean, my my background is in, you know, federal court, law, rule of law, DOJ, FBI, accountability, and so many procedures, honestly, things that protect the country, rules that protect the country, the national security, he busted right through. Let's start with a really simple, easy one we all can relate to, our cell phones. The president is not supposed to be making personal cell phone calls to the prime ministers of various countries or the presidents of various countries. And yet that is exactly what he did over and over again with no prep, resistance to any preparation from his national security team, and no recording of that moment, leaving his entire administration blind on what had essentially been discussed, negotiated, promised. The most famous example is probably a call he made from a golf course in Scotland that he owned to the president of Turkey and then got on the phone with the leader of Israel and was negotiating a kind of a prisoner swap. And many, many people had been trying to get a conservative American pastor out of Turkey who'd been sort of commandeered in in-house in prison, essentially. And there was no record of how the president negotiated this, no knowledge on the part of the State Department, the, the intelligence department. What in the world had Trump promised and what were we getting in, in result? That was a really dangerous moment. Another, can he do that? His rejection of the election results. If you count the legal votes, I easily win. If you count the illegal votes, they can try to steal the election from us. If you count the votes that came in late, we're looking at them very strongly. It's one thing for President George Bush to decide that there's something wrong with the counting of some precincts in South Florida and that Florida is such an important swing state that this needs to be drilled down to the bottom. And people can argue about whether or not that was overwhelming evidence of a need for a recount in those precincts. But it is a whole nother thing for a president to reject the results of an election that everyone in every agency of his administration has told him is the most free, fair, and closely monitored in history. So we spend all this time asking that, can he do that question? But ultimately, at least thus far, the answer seems to be yes, right? I think overall, we haven't really seen substantial consequences for the president around some of these moves that he's made. You know, January 6th, I think it's still to be determined if there are consequences for Trump directly. But what do you make of that? Phil, do you think that there will be an effort to codify some of these rules for presidents to, to limit some of their power in the future? I think there could be in terms of next steps and actual actions that are taken in the wake of January 6th. We should see what the Congress, what, what the special House committee ends up putting forward in their report. I suspect their report that in addition to providing sort of the fact set as it relates to the investigation of what happened, we'll also make some recommendations about 
what lawmakers can do to prevent that sort of an action from occurring in the future. And there may well be something pertaining to the behavior um, and actions of a president. And so we'll see if anything like that were to become law. Beyond that, I think there will be sort of a high standard for presidents going forward about how they handle elections and, and the role that they should have in preserving our democracy. But there's not necessarily a way to legally hold a president uh, accountable for that or responsible for that. And you could very well have Donald Trump, if he were to run again, uh, or another president in the future who would try to challenge our democracy and try to do the kind of thing that Trump did in the run-up to January 6th. And there's not a law on the books right now to stop a president from doing that. Yeah, although there are some parts of our system, not specifically election-related, but some parts of our system that have worked to check the powers of the presidency. At the same time, Trump has kind of evolved some of those relationships. So I'm talking specifically about the relationship between the president and the courts, where he's put some pressure on the courts, or the relationship between the president and governors and the decisions that they've been able to make despite some federal decisions that Trump was able to make, or even Trump's relationship with the Justice Department. Carol, what do you think some of these changing relationships will look like going forward? Right. I, I want to underscore something and build upon something Phil said, which is, you know, the January 6th committee is expected to make some recommendations about how to prevent what happened from ever happening again, because it's so chaotic and so disconcerting for the American people. And it, it undermines our national security and it undermines everyone's mental health probably as well. One of the January 6th committee's recommendations, I'm told, and Liz Cheney has, has hinted at this, will be a change in the 25th Amendment to no longer require a vice president's vote to say the president is behaving against the, the interests of the country and we need to arrest, essentially, his, his movements and his actions. There very well may be a very strong change recommended to the 25th Amendment to get intervene when a president behaves as the way Donald Trump did. As far as the relationship question that you ask, you see Biden trying to model that, staying the heck away from anything AG Merrick Garland decides and, and insisting that he's not involved. And I, I do believe that he's not involved at all. And he's keeping himself at a 400-foot pole from any decisions there to avoid the impression, not just the reality, but the impression that he is politicizing his agencies. In my final search for answers about the future of our system of government, I've wondered a lot about how much change any one president can bring to the office. What kinds of things are irreversible or at least wedge open a door to an ebbing of what once was? And is there anything we should do about it? As it turns out, at least one of you had that same question. Hi, my name is Chuck from Mountain View, California, heart of liberal democracy. <laughs> my question for you, after listening to your very excellent show, for which I thank you, from the point of view of the presidency, and I'm thinking of the Biden presidency, what actions can a president take to preserve small d democracy and repair our institutions? Thanks for your question, Chuck. Phil and Carol had a few thoughts on this. You know, President Biden ran on the notion that he could restore some of the things that President Trump had busted. Have we seen that restoration? Has Biden actually been able to, let's say, take advantage of any of the doors that were opened by Trump? Or are we seeing a, a real effort to return to what Biden would consider normalcy? It's interesting, Allison. We're seeing uh, Biden try to restore those norms, but only through his own practices, through the way he conducts himself in office and the way he 
insists upon others in his administration conducting themselves. If you're ever working with me and I hear you treat another colleague with disrespect, talk down to someone, I promise you I will fire you on the spot. On the spot. No ifs, ands, or buts. Everybody, everybody is entitled to be treated with decency and dignity. That's been missing. You've seen a really determined effort to preserve some independence at the Department of Justice, and the Attorney General Merrick Garland has gone out of his way to try to distance himself and his office from the more kind of overtly political topics that the White House confronts. The central norm is that in our criminal investigations, there cannot be different rules depending on one's political party or affiliation. There cannot be different rules for friends and foes. And there cannot be different rules. And yet there have been no new laws or rules that have been put onto the books that would demonstrably change the environment in which Trump was president. And so, yes, Biden is restoring these norms through his practices, but he's not doing anything structurally to the way our government works to ensure that a future President Trump potentially, or a future any president, would necessarily adhere to those same norms. He's sort of leaving it open to interpretation, so to speak. One thing, though, despite Biden's modeling, that he's running against the current in trying to restore the norms is that Trump's created a whole new slipstream in the Republican Party. And in Congress, the party is not participating. Uh, The Republican Party is not participating with Biden. And a new force is at work in which Trump is a kingmaker and Republicans are beholden to Trump or many Republicans feel they are beholden to him to keep hold of their jobs. So the norms of a colloquy between a president and his opposing party in Congress are also not obliterated, but neutralized to the point of almost being non-existent. All right, Phil, my last question is for you. When you look back at your reporting over the past five years, moments from your books, is there one that stands out to you as likely to have the most significant impact on how future presidents use their power or view their own power? I wouldn't point to a specific moment, but I would point to pattern. And I think that that pattern will have the biggest impact. And that is to use the power of the government to take care of his personal business, to go after his personal enemies or the people that he thinks of as his political uh, opponents. And so you saw it when he would tell on the attorney general and he would order them or, or direct them rather to try to investigate his opponents or his rivals or find dirt on people. You saw it when he called his Ukrainian counterpart, President Zelensky, for help getting dirt on Hunter Biden. We had a perfect phone call with the president of Ukraine. Uh, Everybody knows it. It's just a Democrat witch hunt. Here we go again. And that, of course, got Trump impeached. But you also saw it in the ways that he uh, interacted with the Pentagon and trying to get the defense secretary and, and others in the military to go after political protesters, to go after Black Lives Matter demonstrators in the wake of the killing of George Floyd. And you saw it in so many other areas of the government where Trump would try to use the federal government as sort of his personal muscle, (laughs) if it were. And that's just not in keeping with the traditions of this country or certainly not in keeping with the kind of democracy that our founding fathers created and is a real challenge, I think, for policymakers going forward to figure out how you create laws to protect against that from happening in the future. 
All right, Carol, Phil, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Good luck, Allison. After the break, we hear a historian's perspective on what the framers would think of the presidency they created. On this podcast episode, and frankly for years, we've talked about the value of norms in our government and the sometimes rapid and often unnoticeable erosion of those norms. But there's also a sense that there might be a risk to codifying them. If we give the president more structure, more limitations, do we risk being too restrictive on their ability to act when they really need to? It is a really good concern. I mean, one of the problems with legislation and with the legal system in general is that it tends to move slowly. Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky is a presidential historian and author of The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. Lindsay joined us back in February of 2021 to chat about whether a president could be held accountable for a dereliction of their duties during crisis. What she said then really stuck with me, so I invited her back for our last episode. She weighed in on why legislation isn't always the best response to presidential actions. It tends to be reactive. It tends to be a few steps behind of where public opinion is, where the political culture is, and maybe even what necessarily people need. This is why things like gay marriage or abortion rights or the judicial opinions about them are not necessarily in line with what American public opinion is. So the problem with creating legislative restrictions or legal restrictions on the president is we don't necessarily know what's going to come down the road. And laws have to be crafted and tailored quite narrowly and specifically to help their interpretation, which makes it really hard to predict what might happen next, what the president might need to do, how the president might need to act, what sort of emergency might come up. And so that's why sometimes people are reluctant to put things down in writing because they just don't know what the future might hold. And that's one of the reasons the Constitution is actually relatively short, because the framers didn't know what was going to happen. And so they wanted to leave some vagueness available for the people in office to try and manage the best that they could. That vagueness leaves this window for, at least for me to wonder, whether or not intentions should be part of the equation when you're looking at presidential actions. And I think we saw some of that in the Trump era and we see in the Biden era, just like looking at what a president wants to do, what his end goals are, what he's hoping to gain from a policy, whether it's something like personal gain, whether it's limiting certain groups of Americans from coming to the United States, for example. Is there a way for us to look at a president's intentions when we decide you know, what's okay for a president to do and not to do? It's such a great question. And intention is certainly part of the criminal legal code. You know, when you're, if you are tried for, for particular crimes, you have to prove that you intended to do harm. And so that is a really important part of that aspect of the judicial system. With the presidency, it's a little bit harder because so few of the president's actions are actually brought into court because there is this custom, it's not anywhere in law, it's not anywhere in the Constitution that the president cannot be prosecuted while in office. So, so few of the president's actions are actually challenged in court. And the place where that should really be decided should be the court of public opinion or, again, elections. However, this brings us back to the you know first sort of problem, which is that 
most voters are not making decisions based on what a person has done in office. They're not closely examining their record. They're not closely examining their intent. They're looking for, is it an R or is it a D next to the person's name? And so that check on the president, therefore, doesn't really exist. You know, this show focused on Trump for many years and and now focuses on the Biden presidency. But one thing we've observed is that Trump in many ways wedged the door open for future presidents when it came to pushing the limits of executive power. Do we see evidence of Biden embracing any of that openness, using more executive orders or taking advantage of some of the norms that were broken by President Trump? Well, there are certainly elements where Biden has continued to use some of the powers of the presidency in ways that people were uncomfortable with during Trump's presidency. By the numbers, he isn't increasing the executive orders that Trump used. That's actually been in relatively steady decline since John F. Kennedy. There have been some moments like when Biden first took over office and he overturned a lot of Trump's executive orders on his first day. But since then, they've actually been relatively limited in terms of scope and number. The area I think where Biden has continued to benefit the most is the huge discretion we give to the president over foreign policy and diplomacy. And this comes back to what people refer to as the war powers. And this isn't necessarily even a Trump issue. This is an issue of the 21st century where Congress has given such unlimited authority to the president to wage war in a in a relatively limited capacity and then to sort of do war adjacent things in a much broader capacity. And there was a lot of discussion prior to Biden coming into office about whether or not those war powers needed to be reformed. And there's been a little bit of reform, but that's one area where he's still enjoying the really large latitude that presidents have been given by Congress. Over the course of creating this show, we learned how much of the presidency was actually based on this assumption that people in power would uphold certain norms by their own volition. So when it came to the framers, did they ever consider that someone who would be elected president might want to use that office for personal gain? Absolutely. It was one of their biggest fears that a politician might try and use the office for personal gain. And so they relied on a couple of really important techniques and tools to try and prevent that. First, they assumed that the concept of shame would be powerful, that people, if their misdeeds were uncovered, would either resign or would amend their behavior because of social pressure. Second, they assumed that elections and things like impeachment would actually hold people accountable because they had the assumption that Americans would want value-based upstanding citizens in office. And so they assumed that the tools to remove a bad politician or a corrupt politician would be useful. For the most part, I think these tools actually worked pretty effectively for most of American history. Of course, there have been bad actors and there have been people that have been corrupt and have done bad things. But when confronted with those misdeeds, usually either resigned or were booted out of office. And then in the case of a few presidents, the threat of impeachment has come forward. And that threat was usually enough to force action. And it wasn't until recently that the concept of public shame and elections were no longer useful to actually keep people in line. What changed? Why is that that those tools are no longer useful to keep people in line? 
I think there are a lot of different factors that this could be attributed to, but one of the most prevalent is the concept of partisan identity. People no longer, if you ask them, you know, how they identify, oftentimes their party identity is the first thing that comes up. And so it's become so tribal, so us against them, that it really doesn't matter what your person does as long as they have the right letter next to their name on the ballot. And this has been exacerbated by things like gerrymandering and the doubling down of elections such that, uh, let's say you're a House representative member and you do ridiculous things, but if no one can challenge you in the primary, that tool of the election, which is supposed to be one of the main ways that Americans can get you know, bad actors out of politics is no longer useful. Are we approaching this point of no return with some of these changed pieces of the presidency? Has it evolved so far that we can't return to a time where there was more, let's say, decorum or sort of more civility, less partisanship? I think there are still elements of the presidency that could be reformed. There are elements of the political system that could be reformed. What is lacking appears to be the will or the coalition in Congress to make those sorts of reforms because it really has to come from the legislative branch. It can't come from the courts because they have no legislative power. And it can't come from executive order because then it can just be dismissed or countered as soon as a different person comes into office. And so as long as we have people in Congress who are not willing to pass reforms because it might be read as a statement against their own party, or they don't want to impose those same restrictions on someone of their own side, then I I do feel that we are not going to get the sort of reform that's required to fix the system. And I'm not totally sure what the outcome will be. As a historian, I'm a very bad future predictor. But I think until that partisan divide gets somehow smoothed over a bit, I'm not sure that those fixes are possible. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some people who view the president as a person who should be sort of all powerful, this unitary executive view, that presidents should have the significant amount of concentrated power. Can you explain a little bit about that philosophy, about what that, where that comes from? Absolutely. The unitary executive theory really comes out of the 20th century, this concept that the presidents are all powerful, really have very little limitations on their authority, can't be investigated or held responsible for criminal activity, that type of thing. It is a relatively new development. It is certainly not what the framers of the Constitution articulated. They were very wary of this type of executive because they had just fought a revolution against a monarch and were looking to create a powerful executive that had very intentional and specific limitations imposed by both the judicial and legislative branches. The federal government and the responsibilities of the federal government, especially the executive branch, have evolved as well. Things like the New Deal programs that Franklin Delano Roosevelt passed, things like World War II, some of the the measures that we now expect the president and the federal government to oversee brought new responsibilities and powers to the executive branch in a way that no one really anticipated, as well as a recognition, I think, that it's sometimes easier for one person to take action as opposed to a really big 
legislative body, it's easier for one person to act in a crisis. Or ever, if you're talking about Congress. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. And that was something that the framers of the Constitution understood as well. They knew that it was going to be hard for Congress to act, which is why they wanted to have a single executive as opposed to a panel. They wanted to have someone who could make decisions. But they also knew that humans tend to be flawed and can be corrupted by power. And they wanted to make sure that there were limitations and checks on that authority so that if someone did act inappropriately, they wouldn't destroy the entire republic. Yeah, well, to focus a little bit on the historical piece of it, it's been interesting, you know, in recent years to to see how much blame we ascribe to presidents for almost everything, when in reality, they're not quite as powerful as we think they are. So what do Americans actually want presidents to be? And how has that evolved over American history? It's a great question. And for most of American history, citizens did not expect presidents to solve all of their problems. They looked first to local officials, to state officials, and then to Congress to fix most issues. The evolution of technology and social media has caused the president to become a more important person because the president has a much bigger platform, a much bigger bullhorn through which to shout, and so has taken on so much more importance, especially in the 20th century. But as a result, we now expect the president to fix everything all of the time, even if they have no legal authority to do so or no ability to affect things. And we also expect the president to do so in a very public Hollywood sort of way. We expect to show, we expect to be entertained. And a great example of this is so many Americans said after the 2020 election that they voted for Biden because they wanted things to go back to normal. But now that things are a little bit more normal, they're kind of bored. And they ask, why are we not seeing him? Why are we not hearing from him every day when they didn't want to hear from the president every day before? But it's just about our shifting expectations. Yeah. And do you think a piece of it is about the way we're educated around how our government works? So much of this country is a civic desert. People don't understand how things are supposed to work and where you can actually go to get help. Do you think that that contributes to some of this misunderstanding about expectations around the president? Oh, absolutely. I think our lack of civic understanding is a huge part of this problem because so many Americans don't even know what the different branches of government are, let alone what their responsibilities or how they're supposed to work in the legislative process or what the states are responsible for as opposed to the federal government. And we still do have a federal system. The states retain a lot of authority over different policies, over different measures, over different funding. So for example, education, while there is a Department of Education and there are a lot of issues that do come from the federal government, it is still primarily a local issue. So if you are unhappy with your education policy or your local schools, the best person to speak to are people in your community or your states. But people think that because the president is the most visible person, he surely must be to blame. We started off talking about this, but what, what have we learned about the strength of our systems and our democracy from the tests that it's faced over the past few presidencies? The most obvious lesson to me, and this actually goes back to one of the concerns that John Adams voiced so clearly, is that the Constitution requires a moral people. The Constitution does not have that many limitations written down. It does not have very many specific penalties applied for action. It requires people to want to uphold the law, to want to serve with virtue, and for voters to want to hold their representatives and their politicians accountable. And if that virtue is not present, 
the Constitution does not provide that many avenues for recourse. And that's one of the, I think, the the flaws of the system that we've had to come to terms with in the last decade, last five years especially, is just what happens if American people don't care if the president does something bad? What happens if the American people are willing to overlook almost anything? And that is not something that was anticipated by the system. That is not something that I think was anticipated by most observers and something we have not yet fully grappled with. So is there, I know you're not a futurist, but is there an end to that trajectory? Do you imagine that we'll maybe move towards some more codified norms or a more central figure or some other interventions? I think the most likely outcome is that we're probably looking at some political realignments. The way Congress is currently set up with the presidency is not sustainable. And the way the political parties are set up is not sustainable because there are so many internal divisions. The country is so big. It's split on so many different lines. And so if I had to guess, I think there's probably going to be some political party realignment. And that will produce a, a reckoning with this lack of codified norms, the lack of codified repercussions for bad behavior, and hopefully produce some legislation that will help prohibit some of the, the bad behavior we've seen and encourage presidents to stay more in line with our customs and norms that we had anticipated would be a part of our political system until fairly recently. All right, Lindsay, I'm going to embrace that optimistic vision of the future. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We started this podcast to answer the questions that many of us were asking at a pivotal time in American history. And as the years went on, we found ourselves asking more deeper questions about our system of government and the future of our democracy. I deeply hope that we have helped answer many of these questions for you and that your knowledge of how our government works is deeper for having listened. I want to leave you with one last listener voicemail that I think captures it all pretty well. Hi, my name is William. Uh, I live in Connecticut, and I've been listening to Can He Do That since pretty much Trump was inaugurated. And I just wanted to thank you and your team for all of the amazing reporting over these many, many years. Can He Do That absolutely opens my eyes uh, to how how many pieces of the presidency and even politics in general that we think should be illegal or that we think someone should not be able to do are actually just kind of norms or like patterns of behavior that everyone else has engaged in, but that are not actually officially written in any legal documents. It's been incredibly validating to know that Allison and the team at the Washington Post are going to put out a podcast talking about whether or not someone should be able to do that, because that is the question I think myself and a lot of your listeners are always asking. It's been great to know I have a reliable source to turn to uh, during some very unreliable and turbulent times. Thanks again. Thank you so much, William. And thank you to everyone who supported us through the years. And also, I want to thank every person at The Post then and now that has made this show possible. Carol Alderman, Jessica Stahl, Ariel Plotnick, Renita Jablonski, and our two current incredibly dedicated and creative producers, Arjun Singh and Sharla Freeland. This show could not happen without them. And they are just both such wonderful colleagues. I feel so lucky to work with them every day. The rigorous reporting into the future of our democracy will always continue at WashingtonPost.com and on our daily podcast, Post Reports. And you can always find me at Allison.Michaels at WashPost.com or on Twitter at Allison Mikes. Thanks again. And one last time, Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Arjun Singh and Sharla Freeland with logo art by Greg Manifold and theme music by Ted Muldoon.